Good morning, my beloved church. Good to see you. I flew back in from Mexico uh, Friday night after spending the week with the kids building houses down there. They wiped me out. I slept this morning until 6.55. 6.55 is lunchtime for me normally, and I was just, they wiped me up, but it was, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Numbers don't do it justice, but it might give you a glimpse of, of what the Lord was doing in this last week down near Tecate. We had 145 that went down. It was the largest group we've ever taken. 109 of them were high school kids, including my wonderful nephew, Ian Campbell, who joined us. Um, 36 were intrepid adult leaders, and, uh, and together we built eight houses for families who did not have homes down there. And uh, given that the last day it was 32 degrees, yeah, the last night we were there, was the clo- it, was the, it was the coldest night it's uh, ever been since I've been there. I've, done, I've been there f- 14 times. And it was cold, 42, or 32 degrees. So I'm glad that we had some houses for those people to, uh, to live in. More significantly, we had 12 kids who committed their lives to Christ for the first time. And we had 47 kids who recommitted their life to Christ. And that's the best count we could do because there were so many hands up. We were having trouble. So, you know, the Lord just worked a marvelous work among your young people. You would have been so proud of them. And I know you are proud of them, uh, what the Lord has done through them. They'll be here, I bet, uh, next service, and it'll be fun to, to play back and forth with them. But kudos to Dustin Harrison and Ryan Palmer and Megan Johnson and Adam Thompson and the rest of the, the team for leading our young men and women in Christ. You know, I, I love doing this. I like to build things. So for me to be able to swing my framing hammer uh, once a year is, is really fun. But as much as I enjoy uh, framing up walls and, and uh, putting up stucco, uh, really for me the reason I go is the kids. I love to connect with the kids in that way and it is always so fun to see the light go on in, the, in their eyes to realize, and they'll say things like, I didn't know you were funny. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and so they see me in a way that's different from what they normally see behind a pulpit. And do you know how good that is? They, these kids know that their pastor loves them and, uh, and that they, they love their pastor. It, it just strengthens the, the fibers, the tendrils of, of our church. So it is very precious. I, I love being with my younger brothers and sisters. They are a blessing to me. There were two of our older brothers, however, that were not so much a blessing to me. Before we left, they found my bin. We send our bins of all of our equipment down on Penske trucks ahead of time. These two brothers got into my bin, and they thought it would be really funny to to move a bunch of stuff out of my bin and hide it in another bin and replace it with a bunch of sponges. Yeah, it was hilarious. Uh, It was was hilarious. It was really hilarious, though, when I discovered that uh, they had forgotten to put one of the plastic bags into the bin. They left it here, and it was the bag that contained my underwear. Not cool. And not fresh. I'm too much of a gentleman to, to say the names of the perpetrators. But I will tell you that one of them is the chief of our fire department. And if that's not a violation of public trust, I don't know what is. 
Um, I want to pause a further moment to, uh, to look back because I haven't preached since uh, we celebrated together really an important moment. Oh, it's almost like a, a, a wedding in the life of a church. And for us, that was the ordination of our brand new assistant pastor uh, for evangelism, Ellis White. Many of you were there. It was just a wonderful and anointed time. How many were a part of that? Yeah, it was just, it was packed out. I'll show the next slide. You'll see it. It was just terrific. And we were laying hands on him. And, and of course, in the, uh, in the excitement part of it is the presentation. And so we presented Ellis with his new robe. There it is. I don't know how he feels having a, a Scottish tartan around his neck, this, this, this proud Englishman, but, but he has it anyhow. So, and, then, um, and then, how many know who the first lady of this church is? Who is the first lady? Cindy, yes, my wife. She is the first lady of this church. And so she welcomed Rachel White into the, into the role of pastor's wife and, and presented her with her brand new, uh, her own pastor's wife Ask Me t-shirt. So that was a big moment for Rachel. We even presented Ellis with his business cards, his uh, assistant pastor business cards. We were excited about that. So excited, in fact, that we didn't proofread it very carefully. And so if you'll look... <laughs> Took some of the shine off of the moment, I think. <laughs> One more digression before I, I bring my message to you. Next week, I begin a new sermon series. Uh, it's a very important one on a very tough topic. We're going, I'm going to be preaching on spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Uh, for these last many months, we have been working deeply in prayer. And in these last seven weeks, we have interceded as a congregation for the big C church, for marriages, for kids, for our community and our nation and so forth. And all of this has been very important. I feel like uh, this takes us to a new level. Uh, we, we are going to dig in, in deeper still. The Bible tells us that we all have an enemy to our soul. He's an enemy of our soul. And the Bible calls him the devil, the tempter, the serpent, Satan, by different names. But we, uh, we discover that prayer is not just about us asking God for things, although that is part of it. Sometimes prayer means that we're doing spiritual battle with the enemy of our soul and the souls of those who matter to us. And I know that it doesn't sound very Presbyterian, But it is very Jesus, and it is very Paul, and it is very biblical. So next week, we're going to begin a series. I hope that you won't miss one of them, because we're going to build one upon the other as we take this journey through the topic of spiritual warfare. So I hope you'll join me next week as we get started. And in a sense, this message today kind of sets us up for us a a sermon on spiritual warfare, because we are uh, dealing really with one of Satan's uh, strongholds in the topic that we're going to be tackling uh, this morning. Told you the kids warned me out. And I'll warn you right now that you are, you're not, many of you, maybe most of you are not going to like this topic. Uh, I didn't like it very much either. And, And if you don't like the topic, you can blame my wife. We were walking three months ago, and I was talking to her about uh, this vision I had for a series on intercession, and I kind of went through the list of the things for which I thought we ought to be praying as a church, and when I finished my list, she said, that's very interesting, but you missed one. I said, what? She said, what about our enemies? Aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies? So I'm the seminary trained pastor, but it was my wife who pointed out and really who nailed what may be the distinctive Christian ethic. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
So we're going to talk about that today. Before I uh, read that awful teaching from Jesus, <laughs> because it, it is very hard, I want to set it all in context. This occurs on the, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this that we're going to read comes at the end of a long list of impossible commands. And I say impossible because Jesus is, uh, it makes us responsible not only for what we do, but for what we think. He, he, t- he starts with the Old Testament assumptions and he raises the bar in an impossible way. He says, you've heard that you should not commit murder. He says, that's child's play. I'm telling you, you should not even have hate in your heart for your brother. You've heard that you should not commit adultery. Piece of cake. I'm telling you, you shouldn't even have lust for a woman in your heart. And on and on he goes. He talks about divorce and oath-taking and cheek-slapping. And Jesus just raises the bar to an impossible height. Uh, The record for the high jump is held by a Cuban man. His name is Javier Sotomayor. It is eight feet and one quarter inch. There is the height right there. The lower blue line, that's how far high that guy jumped. He set that record back in 1993. It has stood that long. It's the longest standing record in history in, in, that, uh, in that event. And it's like Jesus says, okay, uh, that's the standard you have set for yourself now. Now, see the second bar up there? That's the new standard. This is, this is what I'm going to raise the standard to. And, it, and you just say, it's impossible. And of course, on our own strength, it is absolutely impossible. And in, in a sense, he saves the worst for last. Because if his listeners uh, were thinking it was a, a lot for him to ask them not to feel hatred or not to feel lust or to turn that other cheek to a slapper, if they thought that was hard, they ain't seen nothing yet. And so what I want us to do is, uh, in, in acknowledgement of our, our, obedience, our obedience to the Lord, and his, his sovereignty over us, we're going to stand up as this holy and hard word is being read. Thus, let's stand it up, and we are going to read this brief passage of Scripture together. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the word of the Lord. Holy God, we cannot possibly fulfill this without your spirit at work in our lives. It just can't be done. And so will you do what we cannot do? Will you give us the love of Christ and help us to know what it means to really love love our enemies and pray for them? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus saves the most outrageous command for last. Enemy love. There are a lot of teachings from um, a lot of religions around the world that have parallels in the teaching of Christ. For instance, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There are other expressions of the golden rule found in the teachings of other religious leaders. But when you come to this one, you are, are treading in new, on new ground. You will never find the equivalent of this command in any other religion. Love your enemies. It is uniquely Jesus. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you might say, but the Old Testament doesn't say that. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your enemies and uh, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You would would say, well, it it never says that. Well, not in so many words, but you do not have to make much of a journey through the Old Testament to find words that sound very, very much like that. In the Psalms, for instance, 
There's one of psalm where we, we hear what the psalmist wants God to do to his enemies. It, it goes like this. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Or how about this? It's really the horrible prayer of vengeance that, that a psalmist prays uh, regarding the Babylonian captors who are holding him and his people in captivity. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against rocks. That sounds pretty hateful to me, doesn't it, to you? And of course, Jesus was teaching enemy love to an oppressed people, to an occupied people. They were living under an occupying force. When Jesus used the word enemies, there was one thing that would have sprung to the mind of every listener on that hillside next to Galilee. And what was that one word? Romans. They were living under Roman oppression. They were not their own people. They could not call their own shots. They hated these pagan oppressing Romans. And Jesus said, this is who you're going to love. I mean, many of Jesus' parables, in fact, in fact, many of the teachings in, in Matthew are pointed exactly at the oppression. When, you go, when you're asked to go one mile, go with them too. That was talking about a Roman soldier and what he could compel people to do. So their whole lives were under the dumb dominion of, the, of Roman rule. It's hard for a group of secure gig harborites living in, a, in the free United States to really understand how outrageous Jesus' words about loving the Romans would have seemed. But I tell you, I think we're getting closer and closer to understanding, because not since the anti-war movement of the 60s can I remember a time when our nation has been so divided and so angry. And not even the 60s seemed as caustic to me as all of this seems now. And I would tell you, I lay much of the blame of this at the foot of social media. We used Facebook in 2017 like we used napalm in 1967. It is a brutal, indiscriminate attack that wounds and scars people. And we drop the bomb with thoughtless cowardice that comes from never having to actually face those whom we scorch. And we Christians are little better. I am not on Facebook, but I have seen posts from members of this congregation that are embarrassing and shameful and divisive. We are creating more enemies for the kingdom. We are fanning a culture of hate. And by the way, we are creating terrible division within the body of Christ by the irresponsible way that we behave online. And so for us to repent of that behavior and for some of us maybe to give it up altogether might be a good starting point for us to address this difficult issue. And then, of course, we overlay the present political climate. It's not enough that we disagree with the Republicans or the Democrats. We loathe them. So just pick your flavor. Who is it that makes your lip curl and your gorge rise? Is it President Trump? Is it Senator Schumer? Is it Representative Pelosi? More and more of us don't just disagree with them. We hate them. And then there are the players on the world stage. Putin and Assad and, of course, ISIS. How can you see video, as I've seen, of men sawing off the heads of Christians on a Libyan seashore and not consider them your hated enemy and really the enemy of all decent humanity? And, of course, it it gets even more personal than that. If you have ever been through a bitter divorce, if you've ever been sexually or physically abused, 
If you have ever been a victim of an unjust legal action, if you've ever been fired for no cause, there might be someone that you can point to that you say, that is my enemy, and maybe even I hate them. So when I ask, is there anyone that you hate, anyone by that I mean that you wish ill, or as one of the members of my life group courageously admitted that you even wish were dead? If that is the person who comes to mind, then you're beginning to have an idea of who Jesus was talking about. And if you can think of no person that you hate, then is there someone who hates you? And if not that, how about the groups that I've mentioned, Democrats or Republicans or anarchists or Iranians or Russians or ISIS? Whoever or whatever causes your lip to curl when you say their name or you hear their name spoken, then there you go. That's who Jesus was talking about when he said, love your enemies. The most obvious thing that we would say about that is this. Jesus is only telling us to do what he came to the world to do. Isn't that right? Jesus is only telling us to do what he had come to do. You heard Pastor Megan speak earlier from the text Romans 5, 8. God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you read that word sinners, you might as well just put in the word enemies. Because sinners means the enemy of God. For those of us who resent having to depend upon God, who live in defiance against Him, in disobedience, who, who, who resent the fact that we are not the captains of our own soul and that there is a Lord who is above all of us, then we are enemies of God. And we are told that Jesus came to love His enemies by dying for them, for us. And once He has made us His friends then he calls us to live by that same gracious and radical charity towards others. So how do we do that? How, when we have these visceral feelings of hatred that run so deep in us, how do we love such people? I would say that Jesus gives us a very practical point, starting point. He says, pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For those of you who have studied the Psalms, you might even recognize the parallel parallelisms. It's the way that the Semitic language was written. It says the same thing in different ways. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. We cannot fabricate nice feelings for those that we hate or who hate us. And besides, God would know whether we're faking it anyhow. But he says, but we can pray for them. And so how do we pray for them? And again, I would say we follow the example of Jesus, the example of his on the cross. Do you remember the the prayer that Jesus offered for his enemies from the cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, echoed the words of his Savior in Acts chapter 7 when under a hail of stones that would ultimately kill him, he prayed these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A starting point would be that you would pray that God would forgive your enemy. Or you might pray what I encourage you to pray way back when I preached on praying for our nation out of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We might pray that for their salvation. Pray that God would save them. When we feel hatred towards people, we often assume that they are beyond saving. They are never beyond the saving of Jesus. Even among the ranks of the most brutal terrorists, we are hearing reports of Muslims who are having visions of Jesus and who are converting to Christ, having never read the Bible, having never heard from a missionary. 
This is happening. My own daughter Rachel has a friend in seminary. I've shared about this before, but he was a, a member of, the Afri- of an African royal family. His ancient forefathers brought Islam to their nation. This man was a Sharia scholar. And he was sitting in his office one day, and he tells of a bodily visitation from Jesus Christ who said, why are you doing these things to me? And in that moment, he repented of his past, he confessed his faith in Christ, and became a follower of Jesus. He found a seminary, and he began to attend that seminary in order to become a preacher, a a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. There is a death sentence on his head because he has done these things. The fact is, you may not even like the idea that God would save your enemies. One of the things that gives us solace is knowing that, well, at least God's going to deal with them. We kind of like the idea that they might burn in hell. That gives us some comfort. But God instructs us through the apostle, pray that they will be saved. So pray for forgiveness, pray for their salvation. But how do we get to the point where we want to pray for our enemy's salvation instead of their instruction? I think there are two key principles that guide us and are necessary. One is humility and the other is empathy. Would you say humility and empathy? And again, I think humility comes right... Both of these come right out of biblical prayers. Let me take you to the first, humility. It comes from Psalm 139. That is my favorite psalm. And if you've ever been to a funeral of mine, you will likely have heard me recite this psalm, which is very familiar to you, I'm sure. It begins, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. Remember that? You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted uh, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, be find, and before you set your hand on me, you know. On and on it goes. It is so lyrical and powerful, this wonderful description of a God whose penetrating gaze follows us. We cannot escape Him. He said, Whither shall I go from your spirit? Whither shall I flee from your presence? Asked the psalmist. And the answer is, I can't go anywhere and escape your love, God. He, He even speaks of the knowledge of God that preceded our birth. The knowledge of us when we were still in our mother's womb. It is the most important pro-life text in the scripture when he says, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. David is so overwhelmed with the omniscience and and the omnipresence of God that he breaks into this pian of praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And, and if you were to stop the psalm right there, it would be terrific. But he doesn't. And he moves on to another passage that is frankly so abrupt and so jarring, you can hardly believe it's in the same, in the same psalm. Listen to the words that follow what I just read. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This verse is such a jolting detour from the magnificence of the earlier part of the psalm. I never use it. God help me. I know it's Holy Spirit inspired, but I I just can't bring myself in in a funeral to read these six verses of hatred because they're so jolting to me. But notice where David goes next. Right after he has just spoken these words that really are about hatred, he finishes on this note. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, any wicked way in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. How does David begin to move beyond the deep hatred that he has for his enemies? He does it through humility. He admits that he is wicked, that he is sinful, and he invites God to do a thorough spiritual inventory of his wicked heart. One of the reasons we have trouble praying for our enemies is because we grade on a curve. We find their behavior so loathsome that by comparison our sins don't seem so bad. Not to us maybe, but it is to God. We must ever keep this truth before us. Jesus didn't die just for wicked ISIS members. Jesus died for wicked Mark Toon. My sin may not be as deadly to other human beings, but it was just as deadly to the Son of God. And if I forget my own hell-bound wicked state before Jesus, it will make me spiritually arrogant towards others in their hell-bound wicked state. So remember how broken you were before God in His grace reached out to you, redeemed you, saved you, and set you on a path away from hell and towards heaven. Remember that, and it will make it easier for you to pray for another broken person. Humility. And then empathy. And I return to the the prayer of Jesus from His cross. I quoted it earlier, but I only quoted half of it. Father, forgive them. What's the rest of that prayer? For they know not what they do. Is that not a prayer of empathy? Have you ever thought of that? A prayer of deep empathy. Father, forgive these people who are killing me. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus gave his killers the benefit of the doubt. He he remembered even in, in his agony that they were a product of a broken system and that they were tools of a spiritual enemy. One of the ways that we fossilize our hatred towards others is by dehumanizing them. If you want to be hateful and, and make that hatred into a rock that cannot be broken, dehumanize them. Make them and keep them monsters. But when Palestinian children are raised watching cartoons that glorify the killing of Jews, should it surprise us when one straps on a vest of explosives and walks into a wedding? When children are raised in hate-filled racist homes, should it surprise us that one will murder the members of a black prayer group in a church? When children are abused and beaten by fathers, should it surprise us when one becomes an abuser himself? This is not an excuse. There is never an excuse for terror or racism or abuse, but it is an explanation And perhaps if we find even a shred of empathy for the horrible circumstances that shape horrible people, it can help us to pray for them. If any of you are struggling with this message, trust me, I wrestled with it before you ever did. I always do, as a matter of fact. Every sermon I'm preaching to myself before you ever hear the thing. It's probably why I put it at the end of the series. This was a hard one. But there's just no dodging this. If we are followers of Jesus, the one who loved his enemies, which is us, the one who prayed for his enemies, us, the one who died for his enemies, us, and the one who indwells us by his Holy Spirit, 
then we must submit to His command. And again, it does not excuse evil behavior. It doesn't mean that you should continue to be victimized by evil. It doesn't even mean that you should not seek justice from those who have done evil to you. But as you're doing all of those things, there's one thing more that He requires of us. That you would pray for your enemies. And so that's your assignment in this last week of intercession. Whoever that person or party or country or extremist group is that causes your lip to curl when you hear the name, that's who you need to pray for this week. And I'm going to give you a simple reminder. Find a pen in your pew, would you? You'll find one sitting in front of you uh, in the pew, perhaps. Pull it out. When you have one, raise it up, and you can share them. Wag it at me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the pen. I'd like you to make the sign of the cross right on your wrist with ink. I want you to put the sign of the cross in the very place on, where, on Jesus' body through which the spike was driven in order that he make, might make us enemies his friends. And when it wears out, just refresh it this week. And every time this week when you look down and you see the cross of Christ upon that wrist, I want you to do the good and the hard thing. I want you to pray for your enemies. I've given you another tool that will help you. You'll find in your bulletin a little gray box in the bottom of my letter. Take a look at that, and I'm going to ask you to take that home. And each week, as we have done, I would ask you to to make use of that to guide you in this process, including naming the enemies. Name them, write them down, and and then pray for them. Pray for your enemies. This is a... This is a demand that no other religious leader could possibly place upon his people because no other religious leader can empower his people to do what is impossible. But Jesus the Christ who came to earth to save sinners, his enemies, and who indwells everyone who has become his friend, he can give you the power to do this. So may this be a week when you are set free from your bitterness and your hatred and your contempt. May it be a week when Christ changes your heart and causes you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let us pray. Father, I think of last night, I think of the response of people as they heard this message, one who was weeping in my arms, who is so broken by what is going on in his life, by someone who has done him so ill. And, and to realize, God, that you can empower us to pray for those who have hated us and done horrible things to us, or whom we have hated, for whatever reason, to realize, God, that in, in praying for them, you can actually set us free from that. You can set us free from the bondage which is really holding us, not them. And there's such power in that. And so I pray for every person here who would tend to point this verse to someone else. I don't have enemies. I pray that we would do a serious personal inventory and we would discover who it is that we hate or who hates us or what group we hold in such contempt that it could only be described as loathing And God, may we begin by our prayer, by our life this week, a work of moderation and mediation that would bring people together.